Where do you live? Who are your neighbors? Do you rent or own? How old is your residence? Are you behind on rent? What housing is available in your community? Today's episode of Stats and Stories focuses on how and why we want to understand America's experience with housing. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me as panelist is Rosemary Pennington, professor in the Department of Media Journalism and Film. Our guest today is Emily Molfino. Molfino is special assistant working with the chief scientist and chief data officer at the U.S. Census Bureau. Prior to this position, Dr. Molfino worked in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Dr. Molfino has worked extensively on modernizing the American Housing Survey and has looked at using housing administrative data to improve the information obtained from this survey. Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, that's a first. Most <laughs> <are>. <laughs> No, we're delighted to have you. Emily, to start our conversation, what is the American Housing Survey? And, and you know, maybe if you'd like to t- talk about something different, I know that there's now even a household pulse survey. I, I don't know that anybody thinks about survey, what kind of surveys are done of households. So can just give us a little bit of context. Great. So the uh, American Housing Survey is the nation's largest survey on housing units, and it covers topics a wide range of topics, everything from the physical characteristics of the home or the housing unit to the demographics of the people who live within within the home itself. It's been going on since 1973, which is very exciting. We don't usually have surveys that go that far back. Another exciting characteristic about the American Housing Survey is that it's longitudinal. So we go back to the same housing unit every two years. Even if the people inside the housing unit move, we still go back to the housing unit and and collect information about what might have changed about that housing unit. Did anyone move in? Did anyone move out? How did housing costs change? Um, And this longitudinal aspect of the American Housing Survey makes it so unique and allows us to learn so much about the housing stock and the housing needs of the U.S. population. So what kinds of data are you gathering and why is it important to know this? Yeah, so we are collecting every survey wave. So the American Housing Survey is collected every two years. Um, And every survey wave has the the base survey. So it's everything about uh, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, the physical characteristics. Did you do any home improvement projects on your house? What do you live nearby? What are your housing costs? And we capture also information about the people who live within the house. Basic demographics, age, race, and ethnicity, year they might have moved in if they're a recent mover. Um, and, but we also have uh, supplementary modules. So these rotate every two years uh, based on current events or the interest those at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So we've recently done a module about emergency management and how prepared individuals are for an emergency, if there was an emergency to happen. 
Um, we've done modules about pets, which is, I know you didn't, you might think, why would, why would census and housing and urban development want to do a module about pets? But it's important, especially going back to about emergency management and preparedness is when people have to leave their homes, they want to take their pets. And this really started the conversation going about we, we, we might want to learn more about the prevalence of pets in, in housing mm. units. So, you know, how many, you, you talked about the, these are the same housing unit that's being surveyed, yes. which is kind of interesting. You know, we tend to think about people being surveyed. So, <laughs> so, you know, so now you're, you're getting this, you have to have some list or some way to figure out how to even select a household. And, and then I'm, are, are, are you asking the, the current residents of these these units to respond and describe describe the place describe you know hey rosemary did you do some work on your house did you add a room i mean is that is that kind of the nature of this yes so we so we the american housing survey is sampled from using the u.s census bureau's master address file it is a fancy data file that is compiled from a bunch of other data sources that census bureau has and it's at the address the residential address level so when a new sample is selected, so the last uh, sample for the American Housing Survey was done in 2015. And the sample was pulled from the Census Bureau's master address file, which is a great data product the Census Bureau has that is a compilation from a couple different sources. But essentially, it is a list of all the residential addresses uh, in the U.S. population which makes it a great frame for the American Housing Survey to pull from. So the great mathematical statisticians at the U.S. Census Bureau um, were able to pull a representative sample for the nation of about 100,000 um, housing units. So these are addresses that we're sampling from. And I say it's nationally representative, we could also create estimates down to the census division um, to get more regional uh, comparisons. The American Housing Survey also, though, collects an oversample from the largest metropolitan and micropolitan statistical areas. So places like L.A. We take an oversample of these top 15 places so that we can also create estimates for these large cities. Um, and every two years, every four years, there's a rotating sample of 10 other smaller statistical areas. So places like Richmond, Virginia, they are not large enough to be the top 15, but they are still interesting from a housing policy perspective. So we also try to incorporate these over, over samples. We go back, recently we've been going back to the same uh, areas every four years. Um, to make sure we can have not just a national representative sample and make national estimates, but a comprehensive comparison er estimates for these uh, micropolitan and metropolitan areas. Emily, you mentioned that this is longitudinal data and this yes. dates back to like 1973. So I wonder what kind of trends have you, has the census noticed in the data that you find particularly intriguing or interesting? Yeah, so great. So the one thing about the American Housing Survey is that we unfortunately do not have longitudinal weights as of yet. So we cannot make statistically 
um, significant uh, or analysis on the trends across time, especially longitudinally. But we do have the weight for cross-sectional. So we could compare years against each other. So we have found some very interesting trends about the changing of housing units themselves and the composition. So they're actually between 2003 and 2009, there has been an increase of the number of, an ad of adult children living at home. Mm -hmm. um, and there has been an increase in the number of unrelated families living in one household. Um, oh, together. Together. So some have turned this doubling up in a single housing unit. Um, so this is, differs from multi-generational housing units. These are two unrelated family groups living together in the same housing unit. Um, and so we have seen an increase in that, especially between 2003 and 2009. And this is why I'm going to plug the, the most recent American housing survey that is out. So the 2021 American housing survey data are out. And what is really exciting about this is that you can compare it to 2019 American mm -hmm. housing survey. And since we went to the same housing unit, you could compare essentially pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Um, and there is going to be so much information I think we can learn about how housing units themselves have changed in regards mm -hmm. to renovations, especially self-renovations. We were stuck at home where we did DIY projects, right? But also how the family house, the household composition have changed. Um, so I invite the listeners, go look at this data and see kind of what interesting trends you can see between pre and post pandemic. We are uh, the next phase of the American housing survey is actually this year, 2023. So we can start getting maybe um, a bit more post pandemic, if that's the term we want to use right now, to see kind of are these trends stable a bit. Um, which is really exciting. There is not really any other sent, uh, survey out there that had this opportunity that we essentially locked out. We were there before the pandemic and then right after, which is super exciting. You know, so, so you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of understanding the, the presence of pets in households and how that translated into kind of planning for emergency management. You've talked a little bit about how the, the, uh, there's more, more adult children residing in households. There's also more uh, unrelated families residing in the same households. I, you know, at some level, people are going to say, well, okay, so what? Right. You know, that yes. I, I get the I get the so what part of the story with the pets and the emergency management planning, you know, and I, I you know, maybe there's some if I'm trying to locate a new D, D, do it yourself how, uh, hardware store that that's also kind of a, a sign of times. But but help us help us think about how these things that you've, you've talked about as data products yep. could are of, of kind of more general value to the, the larger society. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about two think two topics here one is about housing quality and also about housing costs and so okay. the, the american housing survey we ask questions um asking respondents about the quality of their home 
things about roof leaks, presence of mold, presence of rodents. That's a popular topic right now. Um, and we can get a, we but at, here at the Census Bureau, but also those at HUD, the policymakers, can get a better understanding about the, the quality of the United States housing stock, which is very relevant to policy. It, I think, as a nation, would like to have good housing quality and to understand where housing quality may be lacking um, and who is, in fa- uh, who is impacted by low quality housing is important. So that HUD and other, uh, other federal or non-federal partners can help target their resources, knowing that this location, this population has poor housing quality. What can we do to help? Okay. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is survey researcher, Emily Molfino. I'm just curious, Emily, how did you get interested in researching housing? It was happenstance. So my background, my PhD is actually in political science. My dissertation focused on post-conflict reconstruction in developing countries. Very. That that sounds just completely relevant for housing. Infrastructure. Yeah, it's related. Throughout my graduate career, I knew I I loved my topic, I loved the research, but I wanted to do non-academia. And I had the great opportunity to go to a a postdoc position at Virginia Tech University, their social and decision analytics lab, to basically train as a social science data scientist. So becoming a data scientist as a social scientist, Mm -hmm. um, which really opened my world to the to administrative data to and the plethora of the data options out there in the world and one of the projects i worked on one of my first projects was about housing and it was actually with the u.s census bureau looking at housing administrative data and i have just never i i haven't really left that world housing data whether it's from a survey or from administrative data, it's fascinating. It is large, it is messy, it touches all aspects of life from health to urban planning to education. Um, And I've just never been bored. And I think that's just been key is I, I just get sucked into new topics. It's fascinating. Yeah, you know, that's, as I'm, as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about even the, the challenges that the census has to try to list households that you're sampling from, or, or, you know, that that you have this, a, a single family dwelling may be, become a multifamily dwelling with some changes, or may ultimately mm-hmm. be torn down and uh, an apartment is built in its place, or it may convert to, uh, you know, something that's commercial. I, just these ideas of, of having to, to track the life of a physical structure, it seems like it's uh, incredibly difficult. The the other thing that I was I was thinking about is you're you're getting responses from residents of each of yep. these places, and 
And, you know, people are, seem to be less responsive to things like surveys, you know, and, and perhaps we're all guilty of that to, an extent, to a certain degree. So, so how do you, you know, how, how are some of the, what are some of the strategies that you use to address that? And I guess I'm, I'm kind of teasing the administrative connection. You are. Well, this is a problem of declining survey response rates is felt nationwide. It's felt very deeply at the Census Bureau, but also throughout the other survey groups who go out and interview respondents, there is respondent burden. And so we we at the Census Bureau have had to think strategically and creatively on how we can help reduce that burden. And one way that we have done this, and this is both at the Census Bureau and with partnership at the Housing and Urban Development, is to the use of, of administrative data. And I think, so housing is a perfect example of doing this. So property data is public information. The county collects information about all the residences and the property in their area for taxation purposes. They want to know the the value of the land and the building on that land to tax uh, its residents. But to do that, they need detailed information. They need number of bedrooms. They need year built, things that impact the their evaluation of the housing value. And this data is, exists throughout the country and it's public. And there are now data products out there that go out put all this data together throughout the country to gather into like one data file and it can be used. We, why ask year built? What, and, and we, if, you, if I were to ask you right now, what year is your housing unit built, your home built? Would you know the exact year? Uh, yes. I do. <laughs> oh, you do. Oh, you guys are, you guys are off. <laughs> But it happens to be the same age as my uh, my younger son. Oh, <laughs> that's a nice, nice. Um... Well, I have an index. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have a baseline. Well, many people don't, especially those that have not moved into their housing unit recently or renters. Think of a college kid who just moved into their first, like, off-campus apartment. Would they know when their housing unit is built? Uh, not really. But it's in this property data. So if we can link this data together saying, okay, this address of the respondent, we can link it to the administrative data and pull that information over. We don't have to maybe ask that question anymore. Or if they say, I don't know, we can say, great, we can move on and we can just use the value from the administrative data. Um, The same is true about acreage. Uh, how large is your plot of land? And exactly, exactly, who that is, I think. I surrender. <laughs> uh, exactly. Many people don't. And the American Housing Survey, we ask for quite a level of detail of like how big your, your lot is. And so that is actually one of the sources that census, the Census Bureau and HUD decided, you know what? It's better just to go with the administrative data response is because I am sure local jurisdictions know exactly how big (laughs) that lot is, right? Um, And so why not just use that information? 
these avenues of, uh, uh, of research and opportunities where we can start reducing respondent burden, increasing the quality of our data, rather than having to rely on an I don't know, we can actually fill in a, a more accurate response. And I think we are just at the tip of the iceberg right now on what's possible. There is so much research going on at the Census Bureau on how we can better and more fully incorporate administrative data into our surveys, whether it be housing or demographics. Uh, it, this is an exciting kind of realm to be in. I feel like in news media, there tend to be sort of two stories about housing that come up most often. I mean, it's constantly the, the housing market, right? And like the, the, the rising cost of housing. And then the other one that I seem to see a fair amount of is sort of the lack of affordable housing, which are those are similar stories, right? But I wonder, given your vantage point, what do you think there are, are stories about housing that journalists are missing that we need to know? That... There is an unmet need, and I think the American Housing Survey can help paint that picture quite well. So part of the American Housing Survey sample is we try to oversample uh, housing units that are in, HUD, uh, in a HUD-assisted program, whether it be a voucher program, public housing, or they're in private multifamily. We try to oversample these populations so that we can get a statistically sound estimates for them and their housing costs and their housing quality, but also it allows us comparison. So if we can flag in the American Housing Survey sample respondents who are HUD assisted, so they receive some form of assistance from HUD, we can compare them to or view also people who don't get HUD-assisted housing. But we know their income from the survey, so we can know that if they qualify or not. So there is a significant chunk of the population who qualify for HUD assistance based off their income and based on where they live, but for whatever reason, don't. Mm-hmm. And we do not know from the survey um, why that is the case. It could be they're on a, they're waiting, they're in line to get HUD assistance. Those stories have kind of, they go ebb and flow inside the news about long waiting lists mm-hmm. um, to just get a voucher, to, to get into public housing. We know those stories exist. And the American Housing Survey kind of allows us to see that population and see where they are, see the impact. Are they seeing a lower quality of housing? Do they feel less secure in their housing? Are they moving a lot? Are they overcrowded? Are there just too many people in the housing unit? Surveys allow us to see that. Okay, well, 
Emily, I'm afraid that's that's all the time we have for this episode oh. of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.